Welcome to the Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. We are partners from the COVID Inform Horizon 2020 project, which looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through an intersectional lens. The past two years have flipped our lives upside down. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic go far beyond physical health. COVID-19 has changed our everyday life, how we work and how we interact with other people. It has also challenged our well-being and mental health. But did it affect everyone the same? It is clear that the pandemic also uncovered and deepened the already existing inequalities in our society. This podcast is dedicated to examining those inequalities and the impact that different measures have on different groups, which is also the aim of the GovInform project. The project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. To learn more about the project, you can visit our website at www.govinform.eu or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. D-Roll, welcome to the second episode. It's good to be back and today I'm excited to have three amazing guests here. But before we dive into the introductions, let's remind ourselves where we left off. In the previous episode, my two colleagues were discussing intersectionality and vulnerability. So if you want to learn more about these concepts, I definitely recommend listening to and catching up with the first episode. But today I have the pleasure to welcome my other two colleagues from the COVID Porn Project. Dr. Sue Anson, who is a senior research manager at Trilateral Research, and Marva Arabati, who works as a research associate for marketing and communications at CANAP. Sue leads research in the areas of inclusive risk communication and disaster resilience. Marva is leading dissemination and communication activities in multiple EU projects. Our third guest is Panayotis Alefragis, who is a head of digital and 360 advertising director at the Newton's Laboratory. We are going to hear from Panayotis and his firsthand experience with public health campaigns a bit later, as I want to first deep dive into the theory of communication. But first, Sue Marva, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. I found the first podcast really interesting and engaging. So it's a pleasure to be able to participate in this episode today, focusing on communication. Thank you very much, Svetlana, for the invitation. As a fan of podcasts, I'm excited to be part of this episode and especially having the opportunity to participate in a fruitful discussion regarding communication and public health campaigns. Well, again, thank you both so much for agreeing to record this episode with me. At the end of last episode, we talked a bit about how intersectionality and vulnerability impact communication and risk communication in particular. Well, I'm sure we are going to discuss these topics uh, in more detail today, but first I would like to start with clarifying the concept of inclusive communication. What, what does it mean? So my question to you is really, could you please explain this concept while also emphasizing why it is important? And it would be also really helpful if you could include a few examples of how we can apply this concept to pandemic-related communication. That's a great question. Thanks, Atlana. The first podcast raised some really interesting points related to inclusive communication. We know that communication plays a critical role in the response to a crisis. 
In relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, communication has been key since the beginning of 2020, when we had no vaccines, and so governments used a variety of communication channels to disseminate information and raise awareness of the protective measures to take. Inclusive communication means communication that can be accessed, understood, and acted upon by different groups, including those who are vulnerable or who may be harder to reach. We have learned from other crises and during the pandemic that different groups need different forms of communication and that a one-size-fits-all approach does not work. Not everyone has the same information needs, values and concerns and what works to communicate with some groups may not work to communicate with others. How we respond to communication can be influenced by a variety of different factors such as culture, trust, age, gender and education for example. Communication-related factors can also increase vulnerability. If communication is not inclusive, it has the potential to exclude different groups and potentially increase their vulnerability. This requires more than just translating material into different languages, but as Marva will discuss, involves considering different elements of a communication strategy. Two-way communication and engagement is important to understand the information needs of particular groups and the barriers to them being able to adopt recommended behaviours. During the pandemic, we have seen examples of communication that has not been considered inclusive. For example, the UK government had to withdraw a stay-home COVID advert as it included three images of women cleaning, ironing and looking after children, which reinforced that these are women's roles. The Common Form Project, together with the Proactive Project, has written a white paper on inclusive communication in times of crisis, that provides recommendations for inclusive communication. Thank you, Sue. It's an interesting example you are mentioning because I very well remember this and the outrage it it caused. You also mentioned white paper. I think it sounds really interesting. Would you please tell our listeners where they can find it? Yes, of course. Um, it's available on the Covenform project website, covenform.eu. Um, and if listeners go to the resources page of the website, they'll be able to find it there. Thank you so much. I think that the concept of inclusive communication you describe really builds up on the intersectional approach we discussed in the last episode. And I also think it's closely related to another point that you mentioned, and that is trust. We know from the research that some vulnerable groups are less likely to trust the government due to histories of discrimination and mistreatment. On the other hand, with communication strategy, and especially with the communication related to pandemic, we are trying to reach um, different groups and make sure that they hear the things we want to say with the communication. How can we then include the knowledge we have about their lack of trust to institutions when creating a communication plan? Its communication plan creator must consider the recipients of their messages those will define the appropriate information inclusion, whereas general message, of course, must be adapted. Communication depends on trust. However, there is the potential for vulnerable population to express their mistrust towards governments due to cases of preceding mistreatment and discrimination prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which may lead also to lower compliance with instructions and guidelines, and thus potentially increasing COVID-19 exposure. On top of that, we have misinformation and disinformation to worsen the overall situation. 
Thus, communicating messages to vulnerable groups must be prepared accordingly to respond to those issues of mistrust in order recipients actually benefit from the messages and be accurately informed. Some examples of how to communicate with vulnerable groups can be tailoring the messages by considering the specific group needs. Then again, even if we categorize a group of people as vulnerable, there are still differences between them. So a successful identification of smaller groups with similar vulnerabilities should be made in order for tailored messages to be appropriately created. Then messages should provide timely and accurate information, excluding jargon or extremely scientific language. Further, guidelines should be constantly communicated by choosing appropriate media channels. A successful communication plan cannot be based only in digital channels. Different media, including traditional, should also be considered for maximizing reachability. Then, a trusted and publicly accepted spokesperson should deliver those messages to mitigate the effect and impact of mistrust. Additional messages must have consistency in information at different levels, national, regional, local. Then again, we have culture. Culture is also an important aspect in communication. Culture shapes language, which in turn shapes communication, both in message delivery and reception. Messages should be tailored to respect the recipient's cultural differences and boundaries. Addressing the topic of cultural differences and thus appropriate messaging will be a quite extensive procedure though. However, give it just a small indication, we can say that messages creator, creators should consider language barriers, cultural values and identities, group behaviors, etc. Moreover, religious beliefs and religion can also influence the reception rate of each target group of our messages. Religious groups should have, again, tailored messages. We have seen messages from WHO who created campaigns for Ramadan, for example, both on how to stay healthy while fasting, as well as responding to vaccination-related questions during this period. Another example can be religious leaders who communicate with the public, acting as spokespersons, creating trust. Then, considering all the above when creating a communication plan can lead to behavior change and deliver successful messages to each group accordingly, emphasizing on vulnerable groups. Also, we should highlight the vaccination campaign should be careful design, and especially when reaching vulnerable groups. Thank you. That is really insightful. And if I'm not mistaken, the aim of communication related, well, especially related to pandemic, is to incite change. And there is a specific concept describing this, which is also related to public health in more general terms. The concept is called behavior change. Could you please explain what the behavior change concept means in general, but also related to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, of course. First of all, it's really important to highlight that behavior change is a complex process and that there are a variety of different factors that influence behavior change. Of course, we don't have time to go into them all today, but some of the factors include whether an individual can perform the behavior. Do they have the required skills and knowledge? Does the motivation to perform the behavior exist? Do they have the opportunity to perform the behavior? For example, are there any factors that prevent them from being unable to adopt the behavior? Behavior change also involves a number of different stages. There are also different tools that can be used to influence behavior change. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen governments using both communication and legislation to influence our behavior, as behavior was key to the response to the pandemic. 
At the start, communication focused on influencing behaviour to comply with recommended behaviours, such as hand washing, mask wearing, physical distancing and isolation. However, as vaccines have become available, communication has focused on increasing vaccine uptake. The concepts of intersectionality and vulnerability are also important when designing communication to influence behaviour change. Not everyone will be able to adopt the recommended behaviours. For example, research has found that groups with the lowest incomes were unable to self-isolate. It is therefore important to undertake research to understand the barriers that different groups may face in being able to perform a behaviour, how those barriers might differ across different groups. Before a crisis occurs, mechanisms can be put in place to facilitate this engagement with different groups. Connections can be made with different community groups, community leaders and non-governmental organisations to start the conversation and understand information needs before a crisis occurs. Thank you, Sue. I think the concept is really taking us back to public health campaigns and successful communication strategies. GovInform project has published a report analyzing different communication strategies of various European countries. I remember reading it and I was quite shocked to learn that only few of those countries had a formal communication strategy at the national level. This might not be necessarily bad, as I'm going to discuss with you in my next question, but I think it also probably left an open door for conspiracy theories and misinformation. Surprisingly, we've also seen an increase in memes. And we are going to talk about this more in our next episode, but I'm curious to hear from you. What does the rise of memes and misinformation means from a communication point of view? Well, who hasn't shared a COVID-19 related meme during the last two years? Social media gave everyone a voice, particularly during social isolation, such as lockdowns. When we are talking about social media, we are speaking for billion users. The numbers are enormous and thus messages through social media can reach a wide audience, even in a few minutes. The last few years, we have witnessed an increase in internet memes. Internet memes are commonly used to criticize and satirize current sociopolitical issues mainly. With the pandemic outburst, we observed multiple memes that were created and were related to COVID-19 especially in the beginning when the public could not actually process that humanity is facing a pandemic. Humor was utilized as a coping mechanism to ease the situation and cope with stress. Memes about hygiene guidelines, social distance, work from home, and overreacting behaviors were the first to travel in the social media world, followed by commentary on the constant changing of COVID measures or to criticize the behavior of society members and joke on how to cope with COVID in everyday life. In the COVID-4 project, we gathered and analyzed multiple COVID memes from 10 research countries. The memes were satirizing local and national COVID-19 related topics, as well as attitudes towards the pandemic. We observe that humor is certainly helping people in challenging times, where it creates a sentiment of togetherness and acts as a bonding tool on a global level. It is a way to cope with the unfamiliarity and uncertainty of the situation, make people feel less stressful, and if we can say, in the same boat. On the other hand, false information, including both misinformation and disinformation, has been a major challenge during the pandemic, as false information has the potential to cause harm and result in injury and fatalities. The prevalence of false information resulted in the WHO highlighting how the COVID-19 pandemic 
is accompanied by an infodemic, characterized as an overabundance of information, including incorrect information. False information has the potential to increase the vulnerability of groups that are already vulnerable. In response to the vast amount of false information, governments and organisations such as the WHO have communicated guidance on how to identify and respond to false information. In the Covenform Project's first bi-monthly report, we provide guidelines developed by the EU-funded Unomia Project. These guidelines include being wary of popular posts, being mindful of emotions when reading a post, using a dedicated tool or button to flag misinformation. There are many more guidelines, but the main recommendation from the research is if in doubt, don't share. The first bi-monthly report is available on the Common Form website for any listeners who are interested in learning more. Thank you both. Yes, the guidelines are definitely very helpful and it would be great if we could all um, take some time before deciding to share social media posts, not only regarding to COVID. But let's circle back to the topic of today's episode. As I mentioned in the previous question, it may not be always a bad thing to not have a rigorous plan in advance. So I'm curious, are there any benefits of not having, you know, a rigorous communication plan in advance for every occasion? Well, Svetlana, the truth is that not having a rigorous communication plan can certainly provide some degree of flexibility. Each crisis has its own characteristics. And as we said before, the one size fits all, it cannot work successfully. However, communication in times of a crisis is critical. Thus, appropriate messages should be created before, during, and after the incident. Similar crises have similar responses. Communication plans should always be in place, but also be flexible to adjust to each crisis. Let's say that we can learn from the past and prepare for the future. I completely agree with Marva. And as mentioned previously, I think it's really important that before the crisis occurs, that two-way communication and engagement mechanisms are in place with different communities. Before the crisis occurs, there's an opportunity to understand the different information needs that different communities have. And that is through working with community leaders, with community groups, and with organizations such as NGOs and charities. Thank you, that was well insightful. As I mentioned earlier, today we have a special guest here, who is an expert on digital marketing and has a first-hand experience with creating public health campaigns. Panayotis is Head of Digital and 360 Advertising Director at the Newton's Laboratory. Not only that, Panayotis is the brain behind public health campaigns in Greece, he is also teaching digital marketing at the American College of Greece. Panayotis, thank you so much for joining us today and agreeing to record this bit for this episode. When I introduced you, did I miss anything? Please feel free to correct me or add anything you would like. Hello, Zudlana. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you for having me in your, post, uh, in your podcast and uh, thank you for the, um, the chance to talk about our campaigns and the positive projects we run during the pandemic crisis for the Greek um, government last year. Not actually the brain behind the campaigns, just a member of a big team in uh, our company that worked with passion and dedication last year with the production of many campaigns for public health. As you mentioned, I'm the head of digital in the Newton's Laboratory, which is one of the biggest and most recognizable advertising agencies in Greece. 
I have experience um, in digital marketing for more than 15 years. I have worked with many companies here in Greece and abroad in digital advertising agencies. And uh, I have uh, created and lead many teams for social media and content marketing, performance marketing and 360 advertising recently, which is um, actually the most important role of my, to my career. It's the way we're trying to implement the content of our campaigns to many and uh, targeted mediums for uh, different audiences with sometimes different targets in term of, terms of engagement. I'm also, as you mentioned, four years a lecturer at the digital marketing course teaching uh, content marketing. So thank you again for the invitation. It's a great honor to be here and a pleasure, of course, to be and discuss uh, this important topic uh, with you. Thank you so much for adding all those different information. I can definitely tell that your expertise is going to be great addition to this episode. So something we talked about in this and previous episode as well is that when it comes to pandemic communication, one shoe does not fit them all. People consume information in different ways and also have different concerns. I would like to know what is your approach to adapting campaign messages to different situations and different audiences? And also if you could maybe add one or two examples from your experience, that would be really helpful. It's true. During this period of pandemic, including social isolation, it's no surprise that people are consuming vast amounts of media. A recent global research found that over 80% of consumers in the US and Europe say that they consume more content since the outbreak with broadcast TV and uh, online videos, let's say YouTube and TikTok, being the, um, the primary mediums across all generations and genders. Trust uh, is also a big thing in our communication. Trust is trust and information shared uh, on social media is higher than uh, word of mouth from friends and family, and even sometimes governmental websites. That means it is less reliable than uh, information shared on radio or uh, news uh, websites. So we had to be very careful for each message and medium uh, used for, for our campaign uh, amplification. So we made the biggest vaccination campaign in Greek era of advertising and, of course, the biggest communication challenge in Greek history. A project of heavy responsibility, great risks with uh, too many things at stake and, of course, a campaign that leads to success. We had to carry out a great deal of complicated tasks. We organized waves of research that helped us um, gain valuable knowledge. We continually analyzed content uh, from uh, almost every social media network and digital platform to keep abreast with the public's um, perceptions the public psychology, of course, and the behavior in uh, almost near uh, real time. We worked um, side by side in true partnership with the National Vaccination Commission to create and deliver uh, the right messages for each uh, part of the campaign. We actively participated uh, in daily strategic coordination meetings with all uh, key uh, stakeholders of the project. So utilizing all resources available, we, we managed in a rather limited amount of time to create and design the branding of the campaign, the main campaign matrix, and we created uh, a campaign motto, a main motto called It Is In Our Hands, the vaccination and the next step of the pandemic, it's uh, in our hands. 
the campaign had many layers and uh, main goals as well from for the safety of COVID-19 vaccines, information regarding different population segments, their vaccine um, prioritization, and of course uh, the overall process and procedure. But the primary scope was to, to have a 360 pressurization campaign. It was imperative that the campaign was dynamically uh, following the day-to-day -day reality uh, while being uh, message uh, responsive in the most uh, effective way. Uh, there were times that we had to be harsher and more realistic, and sometimes we had to create more optimistic narrative. We had to remind people to continue to be careful when using their masks, but also to persuade younger people to vaccinate through uh, incentives on a social level. We also used famous Greek people and influencers like uh, the athlete and uh, the superstar NBA uh, player Yanis Adetokounmpo and many others. We created a full communication material for all types of media using TV, digital, social media, PR, influencers, crisis management, even the branding and the layout of the vaccination centers, information material to the public. We even um, developed and implemented the chatbot for the official vaccination website for immediate and more efficient uh, user guidance with patients and answers from the team of the National Vaccination Committee and the Greek Ministry of Health, trying to respond to the most important issues that people search and discuss online every day. And of course, to be their threats and the truth instead of the thousand uh, articles and social media posts of fake news. We had thousands of fake news every day, so a main task for us is to, to put the truth up to the fake news. So the campaign has been active for the past year. It managed to meet all the main objective, objectives and KPIs that we had uh, set together with the Greek governments. The commercials we made were among the most liked and uh, resonating uh, in Greece. We created the biggest ever digital campaign with more than uh, uh, 400 websites, 600 million impressions, 170 million views, 12, uh, I think, million YouTube views. Amazing numbers for the Greek advertising era. Uh, our vaccination chatbot at the official website of Greek government reached uh, more than 1.2 million impressions and uh, attracted with more than 350,000 unique users that had this discussion with the chatbot. And uh, our success was that um, past May and June, all available vaccination slots were fully booked. But the most important thing and the main reason that we are so proud of this campaign is that it's uh, truly contributing to, to saving many lives. I want to mention uh, the fact that 80% of the adult population in Greece is actually fully uh, vaccinated uh, up to now. Wow, this is amazing, I have to say. Very well done. Would you say that the formats of the message plays a crucial role when reaching to vulnerable audiences? Because my colleagues in Colvin Forum, what they mentioned is that vulnerable groups may be harder to reach through traditional media. So did you, did you find during the course of the pandemic that there are, you know, any less traditional media that are actually more effective 
when communicating with vulnerable audiences? Yes, the, the format and the message themselves are highly important and must be aligned for each audience and medium. We had to create communication messages for individuals uh, who make decisions not only for their own health, but also for their families. Moreover, for healthcare uh, providers, policy makers, community, and all the rest uh, stakeholders, so our campaign had many, many, many layers in terms of communication. And we had to follow uh, specific principles to ensure that um, our communication is, first of all, accessible, actionable, credible, and, uh, of course, trusted, but also um, relevant for each audience and its medium, timely and uh, truly understandable. Uh, we had to, to investigate on what channels our specific audiences have access to. What channels do audiences prefer for receiving those kind of uh, health information? What channels encourage two-way engagement with audiences, enabling uh, interaction between decision makers and the Greek government? And of course, uh, which set of uh, channels best support the communication objectives identified for its campaign phase? In other words, if the objective is awareness, uh, what channels offer the greatest opportunities for exposure and um, ensure the, um, the delivery of a sufficient message frequency? If the objective uh, is behavior change, what are the channels provide opportunities for the audience to discover uh, others who have um, adopted the recommended behavior, which was different each time, like stay home and stay safe, wear your mask, book uh, your vaccination appointments, and so many other messages. Um, we worked together with the media agencies. We, we created the communication material, and the, but the media agencies delivered the communication materials to each uh, medium. Uh, we worked together to find the best solution in terms of targeting and engagement. It was, um, it was of course, a mass media campaign. We needed the broad uh, reach and we included television, radio, newspapers, magazine, outdoor, but digital advertising had the opportunity to go to those specific agencies. Uh, we used uh, actually a 360 plan of digital, like display, search advertising, YouTube, social media, everything uh, in order to target not only the broad uh, audience in Greece, but also specific uh, target audiences that actually use the web in Greece in uh, 80 or 90 percent. So the country is connected and this medium was highly helpful to find these audiences. In digital mediums, short videos with one specific uh, message each time was the best and the most performing format in terms of engagement. So we created some interactive banners as well, which were also truly engaging. And of course, the, the chatbot we created for the official uh, uh, website of vaccination that I mentioned before was also uh, an interactive and the fresh way to serve uh, this kind of content. It was a way many people didn't expect to, to see, so it was uh, a surprisingly new way of communication in such a difficult content. It was uh, actually a strange content and uh, a unique opportunity to create engagement under these uh, circumstances. Thank you, Panayotis, for 
answering my questions. It has been really insightful to hear the first-hand experience when it comes to actually producing the public health campaigns. Unfortunately, our time together is coming to an end. So again, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. And hopefully we will hear from you soon. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, have a good day. One of the aims of the COVID-informed project is to put together a list of recommendations based on the research we do. We already shared some recommendations for inclusive communication based on the preliminary research results from some of the European countries. And I think it really complements to what we heard from Panayotis. COVID-informed basically summarized the good and bad practices of COVID-19 communication. Could you tell me what the recommendations are? Well, what we have learned from our research is that communication is critical during a crisis, especially in a pandemic such as the COVID-19. Messages should be delivered on time, including accurate information, and be tailored to impact each group accordingly. Simple language but using data and statistics to create a scientific approach is mandatory. Communication should be a holistic procedure before, during, and after the pandemic. Consistency is also very important, as well as us utilizing different and multiple communication channels, which also have to be accessible from a wide audience. Trust should be created between the messenger and recipient in order for communication to be successful. Addressing misinformation and timely responding to fake news is also vital. Identifying and responding to communication barriers early is also critical. Language barriers, cultural differences, identification of vulnerable groups and tailored message directed to them prove essential in the times of a pandemic. Well, perfect. Thank you so much, Marva. Hopefully some of the policymakers and change leaders are listening and taking notes. I think also to our listeners, it could be really interesting to read the report, which again, you can find it on the COVID Forum website. And if you're interested in further results, definitely make sure to follow us on our social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, and we will share more interesting results from our research. Unfortunately, our time together is coming to an end. My last question is somehow related to our next episode, which is mainly going to be talking about data and interpretation. From the perspective of communication, what recommendations would you say apply when communicating data and data science? That's a really good question. During the pandemic, we have heard about incorrect numbers being communicated, data being misinterpreted, and inconsistencies in how data is collected and reported. For instance, there have been differences in how different countries across Europe record COVID-19 deaths, making comparisons difficult. In addition, for example, in the UK, the figures representing daily COVID-19 deaths were highlighted as being too high, as they also included the deaths of people that tested positive for COVID-19, but that died as a result of other conditions unrelated to COVID. There are a number of recommendations and points to consider when communicating data, data science approaches and statistics. One of the recommendations comes from the inclusive communication white paper that I mentioned earlier and is the need for understandable communication. Communicating complex and scientific information in specialist terms 
can exclude groups from being able to understand the key information being communicated. Related to this is that the data should be accessible and provide transparency. Transparency and being open is an important part of building the public's trust. This includes providing the context behind the data that is communicated. When we only communicate the data without the context behind the data, this can result in different interpretations of the same data or the data being misinterpreted. For example, in the UK, the deaths reported due to COVID tend to be higher on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. However, this is due to delays in reporting because of the weekend. Decisions will also need to be made about how data and statistics are presented and visualised. For example, does it make sense to present numbers, percentages or probabilities? Or in some cases, can it actually be misleading to communicate numbers when the proportional impact is relatively low? Also, how should the data be visualised graphically? What is meaningful and what is the take-home message of the graph? This should be easily interpreted without much knowledge of the data, without causing unnecessary alarm. I have only briefly touched upon some of the key issues here in relation to communicating about data and data science. These topics will be discussed by my colleagues in much more detail in the third episode of the Carbon Form podcast, which I'm already looking forward to. Amazing. I really hope that this is helping to create more accessible scientific knowledge. And on that note, you can look forward to the next episode. To our listeners, thank you for spending the time of your day with us. I hope you can join us for the next episode, which will be released next month. Marva, Sue, again, thank you so much for coming to this podcast. It was great to have you here. Thank you very much, Svetlana. It was a pleasure also. Thanks, Svetlana. It was a really enjoyable experience. All right. Again, thank you so much. And to everyone, enjoy the rest of your day and stay safe. <music>